Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 157, Lindisfarne. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Alex, Bridget, and Jeffrey for contributing already. It's been a while since we've spoken, and I'm really sorry about that. I was moving across the country and back to my beloved Portland, and in the course of the move, everything that could go wrong did. I'm really sorry about the delay, and believe me, I've missed this a ton. So let's get to it. And first off, I have some breaking news about medicine. Much like how we found out that the old Anglo-Saxon treatments of ground worms on lacerations and breast milk in the eyes might have actually been scientifically effective, now we're finding out that the recurring punchline of Anglo-Saxon medicine might have had a real benefit. A study came out recently that compounds in horse dung might have antibiotic properties. So this tells me two things. First, Unferth might have been onto something when he was rubbing horse dung into his wounds. And second, that the medical researchers either listen to the BHP or they're reading leech books, because where else would they get such a ridiculous idea? But seriously, how did Unferth figure this one out? Because rubbing horse dung into a wound isn't exactly your first instinct, you know? So, my apologies to any 7th century Anglo-Saxons that might have been listening and felt unfairly maligned. Alright, let's get to the show. Now, this episode might be a little different from our normal episodes. I'm going to start with what may have happened at the infamous Viking raid of Lindisfarne. I'll be stitching together the story, trying to create a cohesive and clear picture from the accounts from the monks and scribes. And then afterwards, we'll pick apart those accounts and get into the motivations, potential biases, and all the nitty-gritty parts of history that you've come to expect from the BHP. But I want to give you a heads up that this one will be a bit dark. So if you have kids listening, beware. Here we go. Northumbria was no stranger to problems. Blood feuds, regicide, and kin slaying. They really had it all up there. But as 793 began, it was clear that things were taking an even darker turn. As the new year dawned, a massive whirlwind slammed into the northeastern coast. The sky was ignited with flashes of lightning, and the rumble of thunder could be heard throughout the land. The food stores, which were needed to make it through the lean months, were damaged in the tempest and severely depleted, and many of the crops that would be harvested later in the year crops that were sorely needed now, didn't make it through the storm. Famine had returned to the island. The Northumbrians knew it would be a very long year, and it was only just beginning. Now the craggy northern retreat of Lindisfarne has been in our story for quite some time. It first attained prominence when the Brits got a bit tired of the Sons of Ida and besieged King Theodric while he was taking shelter on Lindisfarne. And that was a smart move by Theodric, since the little outcropping of rock could only be reached by land at certain times of the day, due to how the tides worked. Other times, it was completely encircled by the sea, a fact that even to this day sometimes puts visitors in danger. 
But by this point in our story, Lindisfarne, for about the last 150 years, has been so much more than just a fortress and a dangerous tourist location. That's because in the mid-7th century, St. Aidan founded a monastery there, in the tradition of Iona. It had grown a great deal in the intervening years, gaining in both stature and wealth. For a few generations, it was the only bishopric in Northumbria. The power it held in those years cannot be overstated, and as such, St. Aidan's project had grown into a major center of Christendom in the English kingdoms, and missions into other pagan kingdoms of Britain had flowed from those walls. St. Cuthbert, a figure so famous that most everyone in the north likely knew of at least a few of his miracles, had governed here, and he was buried on the grounds. Like Aidan, Cuthbert and his successors played a key role in Northumbrian political and religious life. And for good reason, Lindisfarne was close to the capital of Bamburgh. And because of King Aldfrith's reforms, it had also become a major center of learning in the English kingdoms. If you were a northern Englishman and wanted to study the scriptures, Lindisfarne was your first stop. And so monks and nuns came from far and wide to worship in the retreat where Aidan, Cuthbert, and countless other pious figures had found solace. Naturally, tremendous amounts of wealth were also being funneled onto the monastery in the form of tithes and donations. Both the pious and the sinful had been sending tremendous amounts of precious materials in the hopes of securing a better place in the afterlife. The altars and chapels would have been decorated with golden crosses, silver goblets and pyxes for the Eucharist, fine tapestries, ivory reliquaries, and they would have also housed illuminated manuscripts that would have been worth a small fortune. Lindisfarne might be a religious house, but given the scale of their affluence, in many ways, it was a bit like the city of London. Not only that, but it would have been incredibly active. On the grounds of the priory, there were likely monks bent over manuscripts, carefully duplicating the script, illuminating the documents, and likely doodling in the margins. Nuns, deacons, and priests would have been praying, tending to the local population, and performing their duties. And there would have also been lay people who worked for the monastery, probably tending to the surviving oxen and sheep. And in the late spring of 793, they were also likely trying their best to find a way to make up for the loss of the crops earlier that year. Lindisfarne would have been like many medieval communities in most respects. And that brings us to June. Now, June was into the summer months. However, that doesn't mean it was balmy. Located on an outcropping of rock in the sea of northern England, the monks were no stranger to the cool and blustery weather that came in June. But despite the fact that temperatures probably rarely got over the mid-50s Fahrenheit, it was summer. And that meant that diligent work copying ancient manuscripts could be done outside. This would both alleviate the cost of production, since they wouldn't have to purchase additional candles, and it also meant that the task itself would be much more pleasant. After all, it's always nice to be able to do your work outside. And as they were working... I wonder if the monks had heard about what happened in Dorset and were gossiping over what was happening elsewhere in Britain. It's possible they were insulated from the news of the raids, but I doubt it. 
So were they worried? Or did they hear about it, but not much care because they were safe in their monastic community, protected by God himself? But could God protect them? With the arrival of the whirlwind, it had seemed that Thunor, long abandoned by the people of England, had returned. With every strike of his hammer, the sky was ignited, and they were reminded of his power. And Thunor had not come alone. During the winter whirlwind, the monks peering out into the tempest even spotted fire-breathing dragons soaring between the storm clouds. It must have seemed like the old gods were returning. And on June 8th, 793, they did. Along the horizon to the north, a fleet of longboats appeared. The Vikings had come. There were probably no more than three ships, carrying about 40 men each. But they wouldn't need more than that. The Norse were probably already familiar with Lindisfarne, either through trade routes or from prior exploration of the coast of Britain. Lindisfarne was an ideal target. Wealthy, unarmed, and depending on the tides, it could be utterly isolated from support. And the longboats gave them an extreme advantage. They could choose the time and place of their attack and strike without warning. My guess is that the raiders would have landed quickly and silently along the coast of Lindisfarne in the dead of night during high tide, thus cutting off the community from any possible assistance from nearby Bamborough. The Norse raiders would have swept in quickly from the shoreline, and there was a tremendous amount of treasure to be seized. All around the altars would have been relics of precious metals, and the Viking raiders were no fools. They also knew that the English buried treasures with their venerated dead. And so they unearthed the holy graves and stole anything of value that they could find within. But they could not have accomplished this if the local population was left to run free, or even worse, organize a resistance. So we're told that the Norse took the local population entirely by surprise, slaughtering any who resisted them, and as for those who were young enough to be valuable on the slave market, well, they forced them into chains. They didn't stop there, however. We're told that the band also forced themselves upon the monks, raping some of them before driving them naked into the sea to drown. We aren't told what they did to the nuns, nor the lay population, but it probably wasn't any better. The monastery was sacked, looted, and the killing was so complete that not even their sheep and oxen were spared. For one horrific day, Lindisfarne would have been transformed into hell, and the monks who survived, likely weighed down with fetters, forced to carry holy relics like beasts of burden, and awaiting an arduous journey to a slave port, very well might have wondered what they have done to cause their god to abandon them so completely. It was an event that reverberated through the English kingdoms. It wasn't just an attack on a monastery, nor was it just an attack on Northumbria. It was an attack on Christendom itself. And it shocked the conscience of the major English writers of the time. Even Alcuin wrote, quote, Lo, it is nearly 350 years that we and our fathers inhabited this most lovely land, and never before has such a terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race. 
nor was it thought that such an inroad from the sea could be made. Behold the church of St. Cuthbert, spattered with the blood of the priest of God, despoiled of all its ornaments. A place more venerable than all in Britain is given as prey to pagan peoples. End quote. Alcuin was horrified. But the way he writes about it lets you know what was horrifying him. He writes about how this was the biggest terror ever to hit Britain, which is a bit cheeky when you consider what the Anglo-Saxons did to each other, and what the Anglo-Saxons did to the Brits, and what the Romans did to the Brits, and what the Brits did to each other. This island was no stranger to human misery. But what Alcuin was upset about was something very specific. It was the fact that the attack was on a holy site. When Alcuin said that he didn't think an inroad from the sea could be made, he wasn't saying that he didn't know that the Norse could get to Britain. It was known that the voyage from Scandinavia was possible. I mean, Scandinavian traders weren't absent from Britain. Not only that, but there was that whole business between some Scandinavians and the Reeve and Dorset that ended in bloodshed. So the ability to sail that distance was known. What Alcuin thought was impossible was that pagan raiders could make a voyage to pillage a monastery and that God would allow it. If Holy Lindisfarne wasn't safe, nowhere was. God had abandoned even the most pious of the English people. That was the terror that came from the raid of Lindisfarne. Everyone was in danger now. And that fact wasn't lost on Alcuin. At the time of the attack, he was still in England, working on brokering a peace between Offa and Charlemagne. But as soon as he got wind of the attack, he put on his running shoes and headed back across the channel, along with some of his students. And while he maintained correspondence with Kent, Mercia, and Northumbria, it's clear he was quite troubled by the disorder that was afflicting Britain. For Alcuin, this was clearly a reflection of God's wrath. So naturally, the question that followed was, what do we do to anger God, and how do we fix it? Alcuin covers that in a letter to the Bishop of Lindisfarne. Quote, The calamity of your tribulation saddens me greatly every day, though I am absent. When the pagans desecrated the sanctuaries of God and poured out the blood of saints around the altar, laid waste to the house of our hope, trampled on the bodies of saints in the temples of God like dung in the street. What assurance is there for the churches of Britain if St. Cuthbert, with so great a number of saints, defends not its own? Either this is the beginning of a greater tribulation, or the sins of the inhabitants have it called upon them. Truly, it has not happened by chance, but it is a sign that it was well merited by someone. But now, you who are left, stand manfully, fight bravely, defend the camp of God. End quote. I can tell you as a former Catholic schoolboy that that is a classic response. Over a thousand years later, you can still feel the guilt trip that he was laying down, can't you? He was basically saying, this is either the end times or this is God's wrath because you lot really can't get your house in order. Shape up or it's going to keep happening. He was without a doubt referring to some of the monastic dysfunction that we've talked about in earlier episodes. So for Alcuin, this was a religious matter 
plain and simple, which is why there were no discussions of socio-political and economic factors that might have led to increased raids, and no discussion of climate change, and not a word about cultural differences, not even comments about the failure to build enough military defenses. No, this was an angry god. Period. And that's kind of strange, isn't it? God is angry, so he uses unbelievers to slaughter the faithful? How does that work? If there were gods who were responsible for this, wouldn't it make more sense that it was Thunor and friends arriving for some strike back? I mean, it was his followers who were successful, after all. I don't know, I just think it's a bit strange. And speaking of strange, Alcuin also tells us that after the raid of Lindisfarne, the Northumbrians began to adopt Norse hairstyles. Now, obviously, haircuts don't necessarily have religious or political implications, and we don't have any diaries or style magazines to make sense of this. It might just be a coincidence. I mean, beards are popular in Portland right now, but that has nothing to do with ISIS or Al-Qaeda, so it might just be fashion. And there are all sorts of reasons for why the survivors of Viking attacks seem to have been going to their barbers saying, give me the pagan. But it is one of those odd facts that makes you wonder what exactly was going on there, you know? Anyway, so that in a nutshell is the story that was circulating following the raid. So let's break it down a bit and see what we trust and what we don't. To start with, we should keep in mind what the target represented to the Norse raiders. This was a time when the faithful, especially the wealthy believers, would donate very large sums. Not only that, but monasteries acted as mini-kingdoms within kingdoms. The bishops and other high-ranking clergy would collect taxes and tithes from those living in lands that they controlled. So they were, in many respects, acting a bit like thanes. Consequently, Lindisfarne was a bit like a bank. A bank? without any guards. And can you think of a better target for an ambitious group of pirates? So, it makes perfect sense that they would head in that direction. And due to trade routes, contact with other cultures, not to mention the Norse tradition of exploration, it's quite likely that they were aware of the riches of Lindisfarne and how poorly it was defended. And that brings us to what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us of the event. Quote, in this year, dire portents appeared over Northumbria and sorely frightened the people. They consisted of immense whirlwinds and flashes of lightning and fiery dragons were seen flying in the air. A great famine immediately followed these signs. A little after, in the same year, on 8 June, the ravages of heathen men miserably destroyed God's church on Lindisfarne with plunder and slaughter. End quote. And at this point, if any of you think that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is an unimpeachable reflection of history and it wasn't affected by the perspectives and biases of the chroniclers, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I love Tolkien as much as the next medievalist, but I really doubt that smog was flying around scaring the crap out of everyone. And you might be wondering, why would the chroniclers start talking about Northumbria like it's the Third Age of Middle-earth? Well they were trying to make sense of what followed. And it might explain why the details on the actual attack are basically absent. We don't know how many they killed, what they did, what they took, what they burned. 
we just hear of, quote, plunder and slaughter, end quote. And yet the scribes decided to include a bunch of color commentary about whirlwinds and dragons. It's odd. But we need to make sure that we don't look at their account as history in the same way it would be if it was modern history. History during this period wasn't history the way we think of it now. It wasn't even the History Channel. Instead, it was a lot of historical accounts that could be better described as a collection of facts, parables, and fabrications that were intended to teach a truth. Specifically, a theological truth. Actually, that does sound a lot like the History Channel. Anyway, so the weather, the dragons, the famine, some of it might have happened, and some of it definitely didn't. But all of it was intended to show that God was giving the English people warnings of his anger. And the lesson was that this wasn't a political problem between foreign cultures. This was Old Testament stuff. This was the wages of sin made manifest. But parables and lessons aside, the scribes still had a lot to learn when it came to storytelling. We need details. You gotta show, you can't just tell. And luckily, this isn't the only account that we have. Simeon of Durham, working from a lost version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in his Historia Regum, writes, quote, in the same year the pagans from the northern regions came with a naval force to Britain, like stinging hornets and spread on all sides like fearful wolves, robbed, tore, and slaughtered not only beasts of burden, sheep and oxen, but even priests and deacons, and companies of monks and nuns. And they came to the church of Lindisfarne, laid everything to waste with grievous plundering, trampled the holy places with polluted steps, dug up the altars and seized the treasures of the holy church. They killed some of the brothers, took some away with them in fetters. Many they drove out, naked and loaded with insults. Some they drowned in the sea. End quote. That paints a much clearer picture. We don't know how many they were, how many boats were part of their fleet, and how many they killed. But we are told how they robbed, sacked, and slaughtered their way through the monastery. He gives us a taste of the full horror that the English felt in reaction to this attack. And the phrase that stands out most to me is how the monks were, quote, naked and loaded with insults, end quote, before being drowned in the sea. What Simeon is telling us is that in addition to enslaving some of the monks, they raped others and drowned them. Now, how much of that is hyperbolic is impossible to know. But the truth of it is that this wasn't outside of the realm of possibility. After all, Viking raiders were no pussycats. Sure, a lot of the records that we have of these attacks came from English sources, so they certainly have a lot of bias in play, and their fears of the Viking raids probably had a hell of an influence upon what they were writing down. But even when we read stuff from the Norse perspective, like when we look at their skaldic poetry, we see a reflection of a warrior culture that didn't shy away from violence. For example, Egil Skallagrimson wrote a praise poem for Eric Bloodaxe, where he said, quote, The destroyer of the Scots fed the wolves. He trod on the eagle's meal, end quote. He's talking about corpses there. And then he continues. The battle cranes flew over the rows of the slain. The beaks of the birds of prey were not free from blood. The wolf tore wounds, and waves of blood surged against the raven's beaks. 
end quote. That's not exactly the sort of poetry to come out of a culture that's peaceful and just has a bad PR manager. The Raiders were killers. You don't get the name Eric Bloodaxe because you give the best bear hugs. So while there certainly were biases in play, the English weren't inventing this stuff either. In later accounts of Viking raids, we get even more detail about how brutal they could be. For example, we're told that in the sack of Nantes in Francia, they broke down the doors of the cathedral. And according to Brother Indra, who witnessed it, they butchered the priests and all their flock, except those that they enslaved. And then they plundered and destroyed all they could get their hands on. Now to be clear, this wasn't the same raid as Lindisfarne, but rather I'm just trying to give you a more fleshed out sense of what these sort of attacks might have been like. And actually, the raid at Nantes had a lasting impact on the traumatized monk who managed to escape and survive. When he later wrote about the event, he said, quote, Who can disentangle all the pain and loss of that day? What can hold back his tears when explaining what happened? When children hanging at their mother's breasts got blood instead of milk? When the blood of my saintly brothers, shed by hostile swords, drenched the floor of the temple. When the sacred altars were besmeared with the blood of the innocents. End quote. In that particular raid, the destruction was so complete that they never even rebuilt the monastery. They just left. Now, as far as Lindisfarne goes, modern scholars believe that the monks blood-spattered or not, were back in the monastery within a matter of months. So, unlike what happened in Nantes, the monks quickly got back to work, which could suggest that it wasn't as bad as what happened in Nantes. Though honestly, there are all sorts of reasons for why one monastery might be abandoned while another would be rebuilt, so it is hard to say. But what I'm getting at is that while the English scribes might have cause to embellish, when we look at other Viking raids that occurred during this period, atrocities that shocked the conscience were not out of the question. So it very well might have happened the way they said it did. And Alcuin's response to this attack is completely in keeping with the times. Looking to the heavens for an explanation of this horrific event makes perfect sense for the culture that they were living in. The only explanation for why an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God would allow something like this to happen is because he was chastising an unworthy people. The English needed to appease God. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can also find links to all of our social groups. And we've got quite a lot. We've got Tumblr, Facebook, Twitter. We've got it all. And you can find links to all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening.